Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail... Well, the country's fertility rate has fallen again to a record low for the 10th year in a row. New Zealand is changing, slowly but surely. Like many developed countries, women in New Zealand are having fewer children and giving birth later in life. And that has consequences. Governments are starting to take notice in terms of, uh, you know, who they're going to have paying taxes, who are they going to have paying um, people's pensions in the future, who's going to be available to work and so on. I think as a health service, you would need to plan ahead for having more women in these older age groups where there may be more a higher prevalence of things like diabetes and high blood pressure so that you can plan your clinics and your resource around it. Should we be growing at the rate we are growing? That's a debate we need to have in New Zealand. What are the consequences, both in terms of the economy, which is important, but also in terms of the environment? So, why are we having fewer children, and does it actually matter? Paul Spoonley is a distinguished professor at Massey University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. The fertility rate is the number of births per woman. So we talk about a total fertility rate, and there is a replacement level, which is 2.1 births per woman in a country, and below that, sub-replacement, above that, you're replacing your population. He's written a book about this. It's called The New New Zealand Facing Demographic Disruption. In it, he talks about sub-replacement issues. What happens when there are more old people, fewer children? He's looked at countries like Japan, where this has been happening since the 1970s. At the moment, Japan is the first modern country to experience a declining population year on year. So last year, uh, they declined about 500,000 people. And the projections are that between now and the end of the century, the population of Japan will go from 128 million to 53 million. So the consequences are quite significant. We're at the other end of that spectrum because we've had high total fertility rates and we've kept them high for longer than most high-income countries. There came a point around 2016-17 when we first began to dip below the sub-replacement, 2.1 births per woman. But what's happened since then is in the three years since we went sub-replacement, we've dipped hugely. So we've gone from around that two births per woman down to 1.6 births per woman. And so we're starting to look like countries that have been at that rate for almost 10 years. So we're late to the party, but we've we've arrived with a lot of enthusiasm in terms of the, the number of births. So there are two things going on. One is the number of births per woman, so that's at 1.6, but the total number of births is also declining. Mm. So in the last decade, the number of births has dropped by about 40%. Wow. Uh, the natural increase has dropped by about 40%. That's so 10 years ago, natural increase was much more significant. Now it's playing less and less of a role. You mentioned uh, the total fertility rate, the replacement rate, at b- being at 2.1. But you can drop below that number and still have an increasing population, correct? You can. And that's the, that's the significance of the natural increase. So, for example, New Zealand is still seeing more births than deaths. So at this point, we've moved away from the total number of births per woman, and we're talking about the total number of births overall, uh-huh. 
compared to the number of deaths. So we've we've still got more births than we have deaths at the moment. And presumably immigration can factor into that as well? Immigration is huge. So we've just come out of a period, 2013 to 2020, March 2020, Mm -hmm. when we've seen the largest net gain of migrants ever in our country. So we added about 400,000 people to our population in that period from net migration gain. When we look at 2019, so just prior to the COVID-19 pandemic arriving, three quarters of our growth came from migration gain Mm. and one quarter from natural increase. The scale of change here is enormous. In 2020, the fertility rate was an average of 1.6 babies per woman. Back in 1960, it was four. Four babies. It's huge. So I'm a baby boomer born in the 1950s. In terms of my parents, my father is one of eight and my mother is one of six. I was one of two. So even though we had that very long period after the war where we saw a lot of births, and so New Zealand had a longer baby boom than most other countries. It lasted until the mid-1960s. So it overlaps with that a growing decline in fertility in a place like Japan, and that's helped keep us up there. But what's interesting is the children of the baby boomers. Mm. So when we look on another generation, they're not having two children. They, or many of them, are having one, one and done effect, and there are a growing number that are not having children at all. Mm. So at the moment, when you look at women aged 40 in New Zealand you will find almost a quarter of them do not have children. Mm. Now, I need to qualify that because one of the things is that women aged over 40 are having children. In fact, last year there were more children born to women aged over 40 in New Zealand than were born to women aged 20 or under in New Zealand. We had 57,000 births last year. Over 20,000 of those births were to women aged 30 to 34. So... We're having our children much later, but alongside that, we're having fewer children and we're seeing a growing proportion of women who are choosing not to have children. So you said more babies were born to mothers over the age of 40 than under the age of 20. Yes. That seems absolutely staggering to me. It is staggering. And if you go back 20 or 30 years... The number of uh, births to teenage mothers in New Zealand was very high. Very high, yeah. 69 per thousand uh, women aged under 20, and now it's 12. So we've had that very significant shift in terms of teenage sexual behaviour and teenage pregnancies. But alongside that, we've got women who are choosing to have their children much later in life, typically in their 30s and increasingly in their 40s. Health-wise, maternity care comes in a U-shape in terms of risks. Teen pregnancies aren't ideal. And then after 40, the risk of miscarriage increases, the chances of successful IVF is much lower, and medical intervention rates, including needing caesareans, go up. Dr Michelle Wise is an obstetrician and gynaecologist and a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland. She says there are some myths around older mothers, including the one that... 35 is some kind of cut-off date to become pregnant. Historically, this magic age of 35 is a really key 
number in people's minds. But in fact, that is historical. It's come from decades-old data on fertility and miscarriage rate and also on the chances of having a baby with Down syndrome or another congenital anomaly. And it used to be that we only had age as a way of determining if a woman's risk was higher and should be offered more tests. Uh, so there's nothing specific about 35 in today's day and age. I think in contemporary obstetrics, we have a lot better research that underlies um, things like chances of falling pregnant in the first place, uh, chances of a miscarriage, chances of a healthy pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. I think that we see it as a continuum. So it, there's nothing specifically different about someone at 34 or 36. It's really just that as you get older, some of those risks go up. And I would hope that women don't see 35 as a very specific milestone. It's really just a continuum of, of advancing uh, reproductive age. A fertility rate of 1.61, I think that's the lowest ever recorded in New Zealand. Is that a bad thing? There is an upside, and that upside is that we reduce our population growth. So we've been growing as a country around 2, 2.1%, which is quite high, and you can see that compounding in terms of its impacts in a city like Auckland, which has been growing very fast. I mean, it's it's literally been the, the fastest growing city in Australasia. Auckland's population is heading towards 2 million people, with the latest figures showing 38 out of every 100 people will be living in the city by 2031. And of course that has, that has a lot of uh, impacts in terms of housing availability and affordability, of transport, of providing educational health facilities. So we, we could dial back our population growth a little bit and manage growth much better than we have been doing. But the downside is that we begin to invert our population structure. So we have a much older population and a smaller, younger population. When you think about that birth rate of 1.61 in 2020, in five years' time, it's going to impact upon the number of kids arriving at primary school. Mm. In 20 years' time, it's going to impact upon the number of kids arriving at university or entering the labour market. So what we're going to see is a contraction of our, for example, working age population. So where do we get our workers from? <laughs> so there are all sorts of consequences from a declining birth rate. And Japan, if you want to look at what New Zealand might be like in 20, 30 or 40 years, then look at Japan. Look at the struggle that they're having in various ways. Various countries have enacted policies designed at influencing fertility rates and population. I feel like China's one-child policy is probably the most famous example of that. I think I'm right in saying, though, that Singapore did something similar in the mid to late 20th century, and it was almost too successful that families were encouraged very, very strongly to have just one child, if any, and people <laughs> obeyed that so well that a couple of generations later, yeah. the Singaporean government had to enact a different... Yes push and say, please have more children, New Zealand's government obviously would never be so, well, presumably would never be so explicit. But I mean, is that something that, you know? Well, well, let's start with the New Zealand government. The New Zealand government had been explicit. So that 1935 Labour government brought in all sorts of subsidies, um, the capitalisation of, for example, the child benefit. So we have in the past 
provided a set of welfare policies mm-hmm. which have encouraged and supported parents having children. Go back to Singapore. When Singapore, the Singapore government tried to reverse its one-child policy, it experienced no success mm-hmm. whatsoever. Yeah. And when you look around the world, when you look at a country like Germany, Germany has about 150,000 more deaths per year than births. So to compensate for that, it needs about 250,000 migrants each year. Politically, that's not acceptable. And so what the German government under Angela Merkel did some years ago is throw a lot of money at the fertility issue. Hmm. What can we do to encourage people to have more children? Complete and utter failure. There have been some successes. Sweden did the same and did actually um, flip the fertility rate up a little bit. But when you look around the world, when you look at Poland or you look at southern Europe, you look at China, you look at Singapore, the measures that have been put in place to try and reverse the fertility drop haven't worked. Mm. So it's it's more than providing support, childcare, perhaps financial incentives. That does not trigger different fertility behaviours. So what we're seeing is this no child, one child, family become the norm and it's becoming very, very difficult to shift that. So if your question is, are there policies that work? Not very many. The bulk of policies that have been designed to reverse fertility decline have been a utter failure. And we're very poor at anticipating what's coming down the pipeline. So, I mean, COVID's has thrown a spanner in the works in in various ways. And I think the 2020 fertility figure does not fully recognise the impacts of COVID. Mm. So I think the 2021 figure will see a further drop in our fertility because of anxieties. The anxiety about whether I'll have a job, whether I'll have an appropriate level of income, uh, what sort of world in terms of the safety, in terms of the health of our community, will I be bring a child into. So I think we'll see a po- postponement of fertility decisions, or we might see people saying, no, not, not, not having any children. That aside, the impact of COVID aside, we can tell you pretty much what New Zealand will look like in 2030 or 2040. And we haven't done a particularly good job of saying, this is what our population structure will look like. This is where people will live. Um, because there are very significant regional differences, and then beginning to anticipate in terms of services or delivery of particular products, infrastructure, um, infrastructure, uh, the way in which we organise our communities, we really haven't done a particularly good job in terms of anticipating that. Can you just talk a bit more about what leads to that dropping fertility rate? Yes. I think the two most significant factors are the growing educational qualifications of women, followed very quickly by the labour force participation of women. And so those are the two factors. They're supported by the availability and ease of contraception, and they're probably also going to be impacted by the cost of living. So if you're in one of our major centres, the general cost of living, but also, of course, accessing housing, quite often requires two-income families. Mm. And alongside that, there's some quite interesting 
data that uh, has been generated on the cost of having a child. New research shows that the cost of raising a family has risen more than 60% in the last five years, and the biggest cost is childcare. One of the uh, websites that has done that calculation estimates that it, to bring a child up to about age 17 or 18 costs around $250,000. Some of that might be paid for by the state, but whoever's paying for that, the cost of having a child and bringing up a child in New Zealand is expensive. So you've got a number of economic and social factors, and I think you're also increasingly seeing a shift in our behaviour and our values and our norms in terms of having children. It is now perfectly acceptable not to have children uh, or to have only one child. Whereas if you go back a generation and if you go back two generations, that would have been extremely unusual. It's almost a fabulous irony that something which is unambiguously good, like increased agency and autonomy for women, has had the consequence of lowering fertility rates to a level which, I mean, is it fair to say it is actually concerning? Is it fair to say that it's concerning how low fertility rates are or is it more nuanced than that? Well, I, I think it is more nuanced than that. I think there are upsides. Some of those are environmental. Yeah. You know, should we be growing at the rate we are growing? That's a debate we need to have in New Zealand. Um, what are the consequences, both in terms of the economy, which is important, but also in terms of the environment. So one of the reasons why New Zealanders who are millennials and younger are choosing not to have children might well be for good environmental reasons. So I think I, think I would like to see a debate, a population debate, which factors in ageing, uh, regional factors, immigration and fertility, mm. and says, what do we want to see? Are there policy levers or other things that we should be doing to help adjust? And can we plan better? Can we anticipate better? So dropping fertility in and of itself is not necessarily an issue unless you are committed to population growth of a particular sort. But surely isn't population growth linked to economic growth? The more human resource that you have, the more you can grow. I mean, that that obviously is working on the premise that economic growth is the be-all, end-all, I suppose, and the world is obviously much more nuanced than that. Yes, it is. And, and, and I think what we've seen is very high levels of population growth, and the major factor in that has been immigration. And should we have been seeing the levels of net migration gain over the last seven years uh, that we've seen? And is it artificially bolstering up many of our headline economic Mm. indicators, such as GDP? And shouldn't we be talking about a a range of other things? Shouldn't we be talking about the uh, regional disparities, the growing inequalities that are occurring alongside of this? is it right that we should see population growth and particularly levels of uh, inward migration as being drivers of our economic success? Mm. Are there other ways that we should be measuring this? Are there other things that we should be doing? So I, I think it's been a, a very naive approach to say, look, aren't we doing well economically? And 
a significant proportion of that doing well eco- economically has been a product of population growth, which we haven't discussed, which or immigration growth levels, which have been very, very high, shouldn't we be having a debate about whether those levels are appropriate and how we then measure success, well-being and economic growth? I found it very interesting what you were talking about, that people are electing not to have children for what you described as you know good reasons, philosophically good reasons, because, I mean, that has, it has always struck me that you know, even the, mo- the, the most environmentally minded person who makes every decision that they can with, with that in mind, and yet if you have more than one child, your environmental impact is net worse for the planet than someone who jet sets around the world their entire lives and drives a four-wheel drive gas guzzler but doesn't have any children at all. Yes. Yeah, no, no. Um, when you add another person to a population, there are a lot of consequences. So you're adding somebody who's going to be part of the uh, education system. You're adding a worker, uh, but you're also adding a consumer. Mm. And so we really haven't tied the population factors that we've been talking about to the consequences. Housing affordability and availability would be a a major issue uh, that I would want to see uh, considered in that. So I think the environmental and philosophical debates that you've raised now ought to be part of our discussion because I don't think we want to stop having children. Otherwise, we're going to create uh, all sorts of issues for ourselves in the future. It's what I call who's going to wipe my chin. Yeah. You know, who, who, who's going to be my elder care worker when I, when I require support? And so what you need to do is that if you've got a reduced number of children, then what you should do is increase the investment in their health, in their welfare, and in their education. So you, you, with smaller numbers, you can do that. Maybe we just need to send her out into a peer on television. Yeah. Have more sex. Yeah. Yes. That, that, that might be effective. Yes. Yeah. No. <laughs> That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Paul Spoonley and Michelle Wise, who spoke to Alexia Russell. Matewa. Te